Welcome to another episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and my co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Greetings from Boulder, Colorado. Today we're talking with Rich German, a longtime photographer and entrepreneur. His book, Blue Laguna, is based on almost 10,000 hours of paddling among whales and dolphins off Laguna Beach, one of the most beautiful fetches of California's Golden Shore. He's also host of another great marine podcast, Our Epic Ocean, and president of One Whale, dedicated to the rescue of a former Russian military spy whale that escaped to Norway but still remains at grave risk. Also, he's working on the establishment of the world's first whale sanctuary for formerly captive cetaceans. So lots to get to. But before we do, Rich, tell us about your own first encounter or connection with the sea. Oh, my gosh. First of all, uh, it's so great to be here, David and Vicki. Thank you guys so much for having me. My real story of the ocean begins here in Laguna Beach, California, where I lived. I've essentially been paddleboarding with dolphins and whales every single day for the last 13 years. And so I'd say the, the transition for me in terms of really falling in love with the ocean at a deep level is just when I started paddleboarding with dolphins every single day. Uh, started with bottlenose dolphins that live right in the area here, and they just kind of cruise up and down the coast. Where it started shifting was I started seeing really big spouts way offshore, and my curiosity got the best of me. So two quick little stories that really were the turning points. One, I paddled out, and I was in the presence of two 100-foot uh, blue whales. That was the first mind-blowing encounter for me was that I could get on my board, paddle out about 40 minutes, two miles offshore and be in the presence of the largest animal that's ever lived on our blue planet. So that was a huge game changer for me. And then what really made the difference and what led me to start a nonprofit and, and create a photo book and all the things that I'm doing now was an encounter with a pod of four orcas about two miles off the coast of Laguna Beach, uh, where I had these orcas coming right under my board. And the video that I shot it was pretty pristine footage of this moment that went incredibly viral all around the world. You couldn't buy that kind of publicity. And that was after years of paddleboarding every single day and taking photos and shooting video. And it was really a hobby. But that was my aha moment where I realized that my my soul's calling, if you will, my life's purpose was to do whatever I could to give back to these animals and that this hobby really needed to become my life's work. So were you familiar with Laguna Beach as a child or how did you get to the beach? I It took me many years in life to find this magical little town. I was born in the Midwest in Chicago, uh, no ocean there. And then I actually grew up in Florida and always lived near the beach, but I was kind of, I always loved the ocean, but it was more sitting on the beach looking at it. It wasn't until I moved into the house that I live in right now and it just happens to be set on this little beach that even if there's big waves, I can paddle out pretty much every day. And then I would go out there and I was like, oh my gosh, there's there's dolphins. And I would see these dolphins every day. And the creative part of me started taking photos. And then I got fancy and I put a GoPro on my hat and I started shooting video. And I mean, you you name it. We, I, we have more species of dolphins and whales off the coast of Southern California than I think anywhere in the world. So we have bottlenose dolphins that live here. We have common dolphins that live here. We have Pacific white-sided dolphins that come here in uh, the winter months. Sometimes we have Rizzo's dolphins. 
And then we have gray whales that migrate through here. We have humpback whales. We have blue whales that I mentioned. We have fin whales that are out there right now, minke whales. And then I've had eight uh, orca encounters in the last 13 years. So every now and then orcas come. So it's it's unbelievable. And I'm, I just feel very blessed that I get to encounter them almost every day. The, the orca yeah. are formerly known as killer whales. That's right. So I noticed when I went kayaking out with you, you were on your paddleboard. You took off with this pod of dolphins who seemed to, if not know you, they seem to be the locals. So you have mm -hmm. kind of the local cetaceans, local dolphins and seals that you hang out with. And then the passerbys, the great blue whales and the like. Yeah, you and I had a great encounter uh, out on the water together. It's funny because i that's a question I get a lot is, do the animals recognize me? And I don't. I don't know, but these are local dolphins. I mean, they just go up and down the coast all day long. They don't they don't migrate. They live here. So I like to think they know who I am or they recognize my board, but um, they definitely are. I mean, I can't speak for them, but for me, every single day that I go out there and I get to encounter them, it's it's like the first day. It absolutely never gets old. So I got to ask that first time orcas go under your paddleboard. It's kind of like people who say sharks, the new dolphin. Well, no, I mean, I'm a Californian. We got the big white sharks. I think if there's not something bigger and meaner than you are out there, it's not really a wilderness. <laughs> First time you see a big orca slide under your paddleboard, what's your feeling? What's your emotional state? So before the orca encounter, which was, I think it was January 6, 2015, I had already experienced every other species that I mentioned a few minutes ago. And the one species that I had literal dreams about were orcas. In my dreams, I would see these huge orcas flying out of the water. And the day before, January 5th, I saw a report that a pod of four orcas was in Long Beach, about 30 miles north of here. And at sunset, they were heading south. I paddled out the next day. It was actually in the afternoon. It was January. So the sun goes down at like 4.30. I paddle out and I saw eight boats out there on the horizon. Uh, and I could tell a couple of them were big enough to be whale boats. And what I know is if a whale boat is moving, they're looking for something. But if they're just sitting there, they're on something. And I was like, mm, maybe that's, maybe, maybe that's the orcas. And I realized I had to get out there and get back before it got dark. And it was, a, I could tell it was about two miles out. And I said, I got to take a, ch a chance, right? And I was all by myself and I, I paddle out, I get out there two miles and sure enough, it was a pod of four orcas. It's for any orca geeks out there, it's the, the CA-51 pod. I didn't realize that at the time. And they came right up to me and probably the most common question I get about that encounter was, was I nervous? And I will say quite honestly, I was very alert, <laughs> but after about, after about five minutes, any nerves went away. I was like, these are just big dolphins. And I'm not on their menu. And um, so I was not afraid. And I think the key point is there's never been a human harmed by an orca in the wild. And we all know what's happened in captivity. If you put a killer whale and orca in captivity, they basically go crazy and they've harmed humans, but only in captivity. So I knew I was safe. But I was, I mean, when that whale came right, if you, you can watch the video, it comes right under my board and misses the bottom of my board by about two inches. I was very alert. If there wasn't so many people watching, because there was eight boats out there, a lot of eyeballs, if I was all by myself, I would have 
jumped in the water because I felt totally safe. So you've been taking many, many photos of your experience and you put together uh, Blue Laguna. Yes. And how, how did you um, how did you come up with that idea? How did you choose the photos? I, I've seen, actually, I have a copy of the book. Yes, and, you do. We both do. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and you also donate it to uh, mm. our fundraiser every year. Thank you for that. But tell us more about the origins of Blue Laguna. Yeah. So it was after the Orca Encounter that I said, okay, I'm going to make a book and I'm going to start a nonprofit because the reality is before the Orca Encounter, I would just post some photos like on Facebook and people seemed to like them. And I had basically two people that, two kinds of people that like the content that I put out, other dolphin and whale geeks like us. <laughs> and then it was people that would never in their life have that type of opportunity to have that experience. And those are the people I actually love that get to see it and kind of live vicariously through there. It's funny. I'm actually, if you're watching the video, my, I'm wearing my protect what you love shirt. And so my, my philosophy was always, if I can create a little bit more awareness for these amazing animals, then that hopefully is a good thing, right? That we would do a little bit more to protect them. And I never wanted to make a book though. Every People said, oh, you should make a book. You should make a book. And I was like, no, the ocean is my church. It's my sanctuary. And if I make a book now I'm selling it, it's a business. I don't want to co-mingle those two. And that's why after the orc encounter, I was actually sitting at this, in this exact chair that I'm in now, actually might've been a different chair, but it was at this desk and the orca video went, like I said, insanely viral. And, and that was kind of cool. It was all over the news and whatnot. But what was great was I was sitting here and one morning I got contacted by Save the Whales, PETA, Mission Blue, which is, as you know, Sylvia Earle's organization. And what, it was just like back to back to back to back. All these organizations reached out to me, all the ones that I would want to connect with, all contacted me because of this video. They wanted to share the story. They wanted to hear about it. And I sat at this desk and I cried my eyes out, just lost it. And that was my moment of, okay, this is, like I said, where it needs to, this needs to be what I do. If I can spend the rest of my life trying to protect these animals and maybe make a difference, that's a good use of my time. So I said, I'm going to make the book, came up with, I thought, a pretty catchy name, Blue Laguna, and at the same time started the nonprofit Project O. And moving into Project O, I happen to love that organization since I am a board member. I was going to say, full disclaimer, <laughs> Vicky sits on our board. <laughs> it's a great one. So tell us about it. Um, I know a little bit, but I bet our listeners don't. So jump on in. Yeah, and maybe this will inspire, I don't know, one person out there that, that has ever thought about starting a nonprofit. I started the, the thing, which is a, a complicated process, as you both know, because you both have your own. And um, for about 18 months, I had no idea what the heck it was. I'm like, I don't really know what we're doing. And one day I wrote down on a piece of paper these words, blue cities. I said, what if we create a certification program where we help cities to become more eco-friendly, more sustainable. And I think that'd be a good idea. And I just wrote it down. And then a few months went by. And then one day I got a phone call from someone both of you know, I won't mention her name. She's kind of private. And she said, Rich, I know you've been thinking about what you can do with your nonprofit. I have an idea. Come to my office. And her office is very close to me here in Laguna Beach. So I ran down there, sit in her conference room. She goes, here's my idea. 
what if you create a certification program where you certify cities for following best practices when it comes to protecting the ocean and waterways? And I said, you have to be kidding. I said, I swear to God, I had this exact same idea. And that was like our, our goosebump moment of we should do this. And then what we did, she helped me. We, we pulled together uh, a whole bunch of really amazing nonprofits like Surfrider and Oceana, among many others. And we created a certification program. We worked not only with nonprofits, but we worked with actual cities and said, hey, we want to create this program. Here's what all these organizations that came together think. If, if your city did all these great things, it would actually make a difference. And then the cities kind of brought us back down to reality of what a city could actually do. And together we created this program. We launched it in the year 2020. If you uh, are ever going to launch a program that is involving cities, don't do it in 2020. <laughs> but that's what happened. But it was still successful. And um, so we did our pilot launch in 2020. We, and now here in we all in learned to do it all on, on Facebook and Zoom. This is 2020 right. being the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. It was it was hard, very hard year to get a city to do anything, but uh, it was it's been successful. Uh, right now, we have many cities up and down the. We started on the coastline of California, which has 64, I believe, coastal cities. Ten of them are now certified in our program. Nine others are in the process of getting certified. We are just now moving into Oregon. After that, we're going to move into Washington, and then we're coming to Colorado, moving inland, and want to take this thing nationwide. We are waiting for you to come to Boulder. I'm ready. Let's do it. And I'm going to assume that along with banning plastic waste and balloons and, and fertilizers on lawns, that nutrient runoff pollution output that, that you're also adapting like cities like Annapolis, Maryland, or Miami Beach, sea level rise and, and climate adaptation for a changing ocean. One of the big components of it is the city having a climate action plan. Absolutely. So let's go on to what's a, a critical issue at the moment, and will continue to be so, I think, which is one whale, Vladdy, the Russian spy whale. In the fall of 2019, I got a phone call from a friend of mine. And she said, hey, there's this filmmaker in town and she's tracking the story of this whale that showed up in Hammerfest, Norway in April of that year, 2019. And he was wearing a harness and the harness said equipment, St. Petersburg. And it is believed that he was in a Russian military program. Do you want to ha come have lunch with her? And I said, hell yeah. That's <laughs> like, like my mind was blown at this story. And my point is, if not for what I had been doing for all the years leading up, I never would have been invited to this lunch. And so I went and met her and she told me the story. And her name is Regina Crosby Hogue. And Regina is actually the, the founder of this organization. She was a filmmaker that was tracking this story. As she got deeper into the story, she realized this whale, not only is it a, an amazing story, you couldn't create a better story, but the whale's life is in danger. He's been hit multiple times by boats. He's a huge tourist attraction. People stick stuff in his mouth. He's got fishing hooks caught in him. Like this story's not going to end well without some intervention. So she and I kept in touch for a while. And then quite honestly, we lost touch for probably a year. And then the power, David, you, you get this more than anyone, the power of media. I saw an article in the paper, not in the paper online, uh, the BBC. And the headline said, Seeking Sanctuary for Russian Spy Whale. 
And in the article, Regina is quoted as saying that she wants to create a whale reserve to keep him protected. And it just hit me like everything all came together in that moment. And I was like, oh, she wants to create a whale reserve. This would not only be a safe haven for Valdemir, but whales that are currently living in captivity in concrete tanks around the world. This is my a moment to really make a difference, right? I picked up the phone. I said, Regina, are you still tracking this whale? She said, yeah. I said, you're going to build a whale sanctuary? Yeah. I said, I'm in. Like, what do you need? She goes, I need a lot. She's like, she was kind of a lone wolf, if you will. I said, I'm in 100% under one condition. She said, what's that? I said, you're a filmmaker and I'm a paddleboarder. I said, if we're going to do this, we need to build a team of experts that know how to pull this off. And she said, if you can build that team, do it. And I'm like, let's do it. And we pulled together very quickly. As you can imagine, a lot of people want to be involved in this. So right now we have a world-class team of scientists, experts, animal welfare experts within Norway, outside of Norway, veterinarians. We have an amazing team of people that have come together. We created a nonprofit. She's technically the founder of One Whale is the name of our nonprofit. Uh, I'm the president of the organization. And so we created this team. For the last four years, he's been in northern Norway, slowly traveling south, basically living at salmon farms. Salmon farming is a huge industry in Norway, second only to oil drilling. And the reason he goes to salmon farms mainly is two reasons. One, he's a trained whale. He was in captivity for many years. He is all by himself. He's nowhere near another beluga population. You'd have to go from where he is now, about 1,300 miles north to have a, a beluga population. So he's been essentially domesticated and his only interaction is with humans. So if he goes to the salmon farms, there's people there. And when the salmon farmers show up and go to work, he follows them and he'll tie ropes for hours a day around the boat propellers and he just gets in their way. It's like he's there to work because that's what he was trained to do. He's a lonely whale. And the second reason he likes the salmon farms, as you might be able to guess, is there's a lot of fish in the fjords. He doesn't eat the salmon farm fish, but outside of the rings and in the fjords, there's tons of fish. So for the last four years, he's basically satisfied his food needs and his social needs. We have a team on the ground called Team Valdemir that was started in the summer of 2021. It's a public safety program to educate the salmon farmers on why this lone whale is there, to educate tourists like don't hurt him, don't run him over. And that's been very successful. I personally believe we've saved his life many times. Why this situation is so important in this moment is that I was in, I left Norway. I was just there and I left on April 4th. Since I left, we'll call it a couple months, he has traveled 750 miles south. He is, as we are talking, in Oslo, the capital of Norway. Normally, he's in these little towns that have a thousand people and we can manage the situation. Now he's in a city, the capital, that has over a million people, industry, huge boats, thousands of people that are going to want to see this whale, and he is in grave, grave danger. And 
So he's gone 750 miles in the last two months. In the last two years, he only traveled half that distance. So he shocked everybody. And so now we are at a situation where we need intervention. In our opinion, and all of our experts all agree, he needs to be transported north, back to northern Norway where he first showed up so that he can be safe. The reserve is intended to be a place where he can be completely safe, rehabilitated, and hopefully one day we can release him into a wild population so he can be with others of his kind. But the reserve is not built yet. Rich, is there any um, sense of why Woley traveled that far south? I think there's two potential things going on. Three, actually. It could be, you got to remember, he was in captivity for many years and he's all by himself. So he's he's probably a little confused and lost. He's definitely displaced. He's definitely out of habitat and he's definitely a tame whale. He is not, he's no longer a wild whale. He is free. And we, we don't control his movements. He's free to go wherever he wants. I think that's important to know, but he is not a wild whale. Instinctively, he might be heading south as a migration pattern, number one. Number two, he was born, we believe, in 2010, which means he is now a sexually mature male. So as you can imagine, number two, he might be looking for a mate. He's not going to find one in the direction that he's going. Looking for love in all the wrong places. You got it. And then the third reason is that as you go further south in Norway, you run out of salmon farms. So for years, he was just he would just go from fjord to fjord, salmon farm to salmon farm, and he got his needs met, like I explained. He hit a point where there's no more salmon farms. So now he's hungry. So he's just keeping on going. And we're just looking at the map like, oh, my God, if he keeps going, he's walking into a potential death trap and that's where he is right now. So there's there's no there's less food. He could keep going if he keeps going on his path and knock on wood survives. He's going to be in Sweden and then he'd be in Denmark before we know it. The last time I spoke with you about this topic was what a year ago, and uh, you were trying to get things set up to create the sanctuary. Where are we now? What do we need? Permits, yeah. permissions. Give us the lowdown. Yeah, so to create a whale reserve is a very complex, complicated thing. Uh, And the biggest part of it is where would it be and how do we get permission to turn an area into a reserve? And that's where I think it's a minor miracle of where we're at, thanks to the town of Hammerfest. So Valdemir shows up in Hammerfest originally, spends almost four months there, as you can imagine, because he's the cutest, sweetest thing ever, that people fell in love with him. And then he just took off south. We, really Regina that did the heaviest of the lifting along with our partners in Norway. When she first proposed the idea of having a whale sanctuary in Norway, she was laughed out of every conversation. Uh, One thing we didn't mention, David, is not only does Norway not have the greatest track record of animal welfare. It's a whaling nation. It is one of three whaling nations left on the planet. Japan, Iceland, and Norway, still to this day, it's legal to kill whales. So to think that we could build a whale reserve in a whaling nation seems quite counterintuitive, maybe borderline crazy. But Hammerfest likes the idea, fell in love with the whale, designated a fjord that could be the reserve, and 
on March 23rd of this year, 2023, they had a vote where 28 elected officials in the town of Hammerfest, 28 out of 32, voted in favor of designating a fjord into a, becoming a whale reserve. Before that moment, we were a bunch of whale-hugging rebels wanting to save a whale and maybe some others, but then it became real. So right now we have a town, legal, you know, a government behind this project. We have a fjord, hopefully, that they have designated that we can use and studies on the fjord are being done. It's massive. It's 500 acres. It is a beautiful, pristine fjord. We have, like I mentioned earlier, the team of people that we feel can pull this project off. And I think what's great is they said, hey, we're not going to go all in on this for one whale. Like that would be a lot to try to save one whale, even though we feel one whale is worth saving. The magic of it, in my mind, is that poor Valdemir, imagine his life pulled away from the ocean, from his family, right? And whales are a lot like humans, pulled from his family at around two years old, forced into military action, which to me is the most insane thing ever. The fact that Humans would take our most sacred animals, in my opinion, whales, and use them to protect ourselves from ourselves. Tells me our species needs to take a long look in the mirror that we would do something so asinine, in my opinion. Because he went through all that, now he's been living alone for four years. You know, He's gone through this hellacious journey, but because of him, we're going to be able to now protect other whales that are currently living in captivity. It's a, to me, it's, it's, it's the story of all stories. So our hope is to build this reserve. Hopefully it's a place where he can be re rehabilitated and eventually released into a wild pod. And at the same time, there's three over 300 beluga whales in captivity around the world right now. I believe the correct number is 56 orcas in captivity. And this could be a home for many of them as consciousness is shifting around uh, captivity, There's these whales are going to need a home and no other real solution exists. So I feel it's a, an extremely important project um, and I'm just excited to be a part of it. Both of us want to thank you so much for being mm -hmm. on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. We will keep tracking our, our famous white whale, Boldy, and um, keeping fingers crossed that we get this get this refuge, this sanctuary, this area of protection. Thank you so much, guys. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May, the theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean
ocean off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky. 